Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Wise Guys, Sage Philosophy. If we ask you to picture a source of philosophical wisdom, then as a faithful listener of this podcast, you won't necessarily imagine a white European with a beard, like most people probably would. You might be thinking of an Indian, a Persian, or an African, and conjuring up a woman instead of a man. But here's the thing, you'll still be imagining one individual. Yet individuals have been strikingly absent from our recent tour of philosophical ideas in African tradition. In the sort of research that has come to be called ethno-philosophy, the carriers of wisdom are not single persons, they are entire cultures. Of course, we did distance ourselves from some of the more extravagant claims of ethno-philosophers who ascribe certain worldviews or concepts to Africa as a whole. But in taking a more differentiated approach, we talked about the ideas, religions, practices, and proverbs of groups like the Akan, Yoruba, Bantu, Igbo, Beng, and so on. The only individuals named in these episodes were scholars like John Mbiti or Placid Tempus, who did research into the philosophy of traditional peoples. In the words of Henry Odera Uruka, such research presents us with the spectacle of philosophy without philosophers. Like the members of the so-called professional school we covered last time, scholars who believed that African philosophy should consist of works written by individual Africans, Oruka was not satisfied with the ethno-philosophical approach. He wrote rather dismissively of the anthropological fogs besetting the ethno-philosophical project, which in some cases was nothing more than mythology paraded as philosophy. Oruka was highly critical of both Mbiti and temples. The shortcomings he identified in their work are pretty much those we've already discussed. Mbiti's idea that traditional Africans lack an idea of an extended future would, if valid at all, apply to all peasant economies, while Temples' project was vitiated by his assumption that Africans are incapable of formulating philosophical ideas explicitly for themselves. Setting out to challenge this condescending view, Oruka set out to answer the following question. Would it be possible to identify persons of traditional African culture, capable of the critical second-order type of thinking about the various problems of human life and nature, persons, that is, who subject beliefs that are traditionally taken for granted to independent, rational re-examination, and who are inclined to accept or reject such beliefs on the authority of reason rather than on the basis of a communal or religious consensus? Aruka's method was to interview selected wise men, and less frequently women, from his native Kenya, who seemed to be particularly wise. These were the sages studied in what he came to call sage philosophy. Sage philosophy is, thus, the attempt to locate and learn from individuals in Africa, rather than from groups as a whole. Uruka led efforts to do just this, and argued in defense of his method while also writing on other issues like economic development and the nature of truth, up to his death in 1995. Writing in 1990, he defined the fruits of his research as follows. Sage philosophy is the expressed thoughts of wise men and women in any given community, and is a way of thinking and explaining the world that fluctuates between popular wisdom, well-known communal maxims, aphorisms, and general common-sense truths, and didactic wisdom, an expounded wisdom and a rational thought of some given individuals within a community. 
Here, Oruka makes a distinction that is often overlooked in characterizations of his method. He did not understand sage to be a synonym for philosopher. Rather, he distinguished between two kinds of sagacity, contrasting culture, popular, or folk wisdom to didactic or philosophic wisdom. A folk sage is someone who is distinguished for their wisdom, but still thinks within their traditional culture. An example of this was provided in an earlier study, often mentioned by Oruka, published by Maurice Creel. Creel had been interested in the beliefs of the Dogon people, and to learn about these, he had done interviews with a sage named Ogotemeli in 1933. This sounds like an anticipation of Oruka's own method. But Oruka saw limitations in Griel's work, which simply treated Ogotemeli as a mouthpiece for ideas he assumed were shared by all Dogon. This sage was not being treated as a thinker in his own right. You could say that in this ethno-philosophical study, we did for once get a named individual, but his individuality was irrelevant. As one of Oruka's students put it, philosophy is a personal enterprise, and Oruka was duly concerned with Ogatemeli's own individual wisdom. On the basis of the evidence presented in Greu's study, Oruka deemed this sage to fall short of true philosophical sagacity. He was, as Oruka put it, not a sage in the second order. In other words, Ogatemeli did not reflect critically on the ideas of his culture. Indeed, the whole point of Griot's study was that every idea mentioned in the interviews could be ascribed to the Dogon quite generally, so that most of what he says is known to be common knowledge to the average member of the tribe. Why was it so important to Oruka that philosophical sages be critically self-reflective? One answer lies in a parallel he liked to draw between sage philosophy and ancient Greek philosophy. He and his collaborators were able to find illiterate wise men and women who came out with cosmological remarks not unlike those of the pre-Socratics. Take Rose Odimbo, who may remind us of Heraclitus when she points to the inevitability of both change and stability in all things, and who even said that without stability nothing would be knowable. Or Naftali Angalo, who identified water as a universal principle, much like the first pre-Socratic, Thales. But Oruka's paradigm philosopher seems to have been Socrates. Socrates was famously self-reflective and critical about his own beliefs and the beliefs of his society, a second-order sage, if ever there was one. He was also passionately committed to the practical relevance of philosophy. He wanted, above all, to know how to live. For Oruka, too, a genuinely philosophical outlook should include a strong ethical impulse and sagacity should be devoted to the improvement of society. Which seems unduly restrictive, by the way. Surely we should count as a philosopher, an African sage whose insights concern only epistemology, metaphysics, or philosophy of language. Socrates also fits nicely into Oruka's story in that he wrote nothing. Just as we know the teachings of the African sages only from the reports of Oruka and others, we only know about Socrates' philosophy thanks to Plato and Xenophon. Of course, Socrates was well-educated and literate, whereas most of Oruka's interview subjects were illiterate. In common with the ethno-philosophers he criticized, Oruka believed that philosophy can exist in a purely oral setting. Thus, he commented, We should not make a great issue about writing. Writing is not thinking, and philosophy is thinking. And one can think even if one is incapable of, or has no facilities for, writing. 
yet illiteracy was not an absolute requirement. One of his favorite examples of a philosophical sage, Paul Mbuya Okoko, who died in 1981 at the age of 90, even published books in the Luau language. But if illiteracy isn't an absolute requirement to qualify as a philosophical sage, it does help. This is because, again, like the ethno-philosophers, Oruka was trying to find wisdom in authentically indigenous settings. His subjects had to be, as he put it, deeply rooted in traditional African culture, rather than, say, philosophers who had been trained in Europe, or who were professors at African universities. This outlook left Oruka vulnerable to critique. Some of his sages, including Paul Mbuya, who not only wrote books but was Christian and active in politics, were challenged as bad examples because they were too influenced by the modern world. The search for distinctively traditional wisdom opened Oruka to another charge, which concerned the interviews he and others conducted with candidate sages. Oruka was insistent that the interviewer was only there to give birth to the sages' ideas, drawing out their teachings by careful questioning. Maybe he was again thinking of Socrates, who in one platonic dialogue compares himself to a midwife for the ideas of younger men. But some readers of Oruka's reported interviews found the questions to be leading ones that effectively smuggled in certain philosophical concerns or ideas from the Western tradition. This would contaminate the ideas that were supposedly being elicited from the sages. Actually, a perusal of the interview records suggests that, if anything, Oruka's project took its cue from the ethno-philosophical literature Oruka had criticized. Often, the sages are asked to remark on the nature of time and the reality of a long future, a line of questioning that was clearly inspired by the work of Mbiti. Or, they are queried about the nature of God or the gods, divination or communalism, basically the same range of issues we've surveyed in our own look at ethno-philosophy. Another topic we ourselves have discussed, and that Oruka frequently stressed in his research, is gender, and in particular the equality between men and women. His interview subjects offered a spectrum of views here, with both folk and philosophical sages commenting on the status of women. Their remarks express everything from fairly blunt misogyny to partially enlightened views, and the outright egalitarianism of the aforementioned Paul Mbuya, who said, Given the view that men and women are inherently equal, we see that women can be more intelligent than a man, just as a man can also be more intelligent than a woman. Oruka took this as a paradigm example of second-order reflection, since it showed that Mbuya was able to take critical distance on his own culture. Not everyone was convinced. One critic, D.A. Masolo, retorted that this was only a statement thrown out without much of the usual elaboration that often goes with philosophic exposition. Here we seem to enter into rather murky terrain. How elaborate does an exposition need to be before it rises to the level of philosophy? A more apposite criticism might be that Oruka sometimes seems to conflate the idea of second-order reflection with the idea of offering critical correction to cultural beliefs. In a way, this is natural enough, because anyone who challenges the beliefs of their society thereby shows that they have reflected on those beliefs and found them wanting. We find clear cases of this in Oruka's interviews, as with Okemba Simuyu Chongo, who observed that religion had been used by the white man as a machete to clear the way for colonialism, or Oruka Rangninya, 
who argued that medicine men are just people who are skilled at psychologically manipulating their clients. But we should bear in mind that someone might engage in second-order reflection on their cultural beliefs and decide that those beliefs are correct. Some of the figures that Oruka classified as folk sages do this. Consider the case of Chege Kamau, a sage of Kikuyu land who was born in 1911. Questioned about the nature of wisdom, he gave the following answer. In Kikuyu traditional society, elders are the leaders, the teachers. Children should copy the good examples of elders. Education is not found in big books. Education is out there in the world. When you are walking, sleeping, tilling the land, talking, praying, eating, you are learning. Book education corrupts. It makes man's mind weak. He must run back to his books to check what action to take. And he later adds that he himself took all his learning from parents and community. Similarly, Ali Imwatani Masero, also labeled as a folk sage, stated that, You cannot seek wisdom, it is given at birth. While these discussions may not rise to the level of the elaboration that Mazzola was hoping to see in Oruka's reports, they are clearly second order. Both folk sages expressed views about the nature of wisdom and what you have to do to get it. Their second order reflections led them to the conclusion that wisdom is either an inborn gift or precisely something that is passed down from older generations. It may be disappointing to seek out wise members of a community and see them using their wisdom to justify adhering to traditional beliefs, especially if we ourselves think those beliefs are defective, as with sexist attitudes towards women. But as Sophie Oluwole has commented in her reflections on Oruka's project, Inadequate philosophy is philosophy still. Our point here is not only that it is difficult to draw a sharp contrast between folk sagacity and philosophic sagacity, or that Oruka drew the line in the wrong place, though others have indeed made this sort of complaint. It is rather that being reflective can reinforce, rather than undermining, established cultural attitudes and doctrines. Indeed, we might go so far as to say that this is what we mostly find in the history of philosophy not only in Africa, but all around the world. True, some of the most famous philosophers, from Socrates and Plato to Marx and Nietzsche, have indeed been highly critical of their societies. But philosophers have, if anything, more often been in the business of vindicating the beliefs of their own social groups. Just think of Thomas Aquinas' proofs for God's existence, Nagarjuna's ingenious defense of Buddhist ideas of non-dependence, or John Rawls, showing his fellow liberals just how right their political views have been all along. All three distinguished themselves not by overturning the beliefs with which they began, but by putting formidable intelligence at the service of those very beliefs. Actually, this observation could help, rather than undermine, Oruka's idea of sage philosophy, though it might bring sage philosophy closer to the approach taken in works of ethno-philosophy. Once we recognize that sages could count as philosophers while remaining within traditional worldviews, rather than revising them, we will more easily be able to deal with a paradox posed to Oruka by Christian Neugebauer. On the one hand, to earn the name philosophy, the examples of sagacity put forward by Oruka needed somehow to satisfy the criteria we associate with Greek philosophy and all that came out of it. They needed, among other things, to be critical, argumentative, and reflective. On the other hand, the sage philosophy enterprise seeks to uncover thought that is recognizably African. After all, 
The whole point was to offer a new model and method for establishing the reality of something we could plausibly call African philosophy, while retaining the common sense idea that philosophy is something done by one person at a time. But how can sagacity simultaneously look so familiar to the Western-minded investigator that he or she counts it as philosophy, while also being characteristically, even idiosyncratically, African? The most straightforward way that this might happen would be to find sages who do reflect on their so-called folk culture, but come to the view that that culture is well worth embracing. We saw something along these lines in our interview with Samuel Imbo, who discussed with us the thought of Okot Pipitek. Admittedly, the well-educated Pipitek, with the time he spent in the West, is no one's idea of a traditional African sage, but he did think long and hard about his own African culture and language and decide that it was valuable, with a kind of value that could only be maintained in a traditional setting. In his discussion of sage philosophy, Neugebauer was more skeptical about the urge to attach African philosophy to African culture. He was especially struck by the tendency, which is arguably shared by both ethno-philosophy and sage philosophy, to want African philosophy to be pure of all Western influence. Think again of how Oruka was sensitive to the charge that a man like Paul Mbuya was too worldly to count as a genuine African sage. Actually, Oruka was not committed to the view that philosophical ideas are permanently linked to the culture, place, or people that gave rise to them. He asked why, as he put it, the Anglo-Saxon people should be overflattered to believe that empiricist philosophy is British, and that any other person who comes to entertain it would only be swimming in the British gnosis. Yet, as we've seen, he did want his sages to be rooted in traditional culture, and was even convinced that all philosophical theses are rooted and driven by their cultural origins, so that cultural origins must be made transparent in philosophical dialogue. This takes us back, finally, to the role of the interlocutor, or reporter, who interviews the sage and tries to get them to divulge their wisdom for the benefit of the rest of us. Critics did not complain only about leading questions, but also that the whole enterprise involves soliciting philosophical views that would otherwise have remained unexpressed. Wouldn't a real philosopher put forward their views without needing someone else to come along and provoke them into doing so? As one of Oruka's more trenchant opponents, Peter Burunren, put it, It is one thing to show that there are men capable of philosophical dialogue in Africa, and another to show that there are African philosophers, in the sense of those who have engaged in organized systematic reflections on the thoughts, beliefs, and practices of their people. Though Oruka was at pains to insist on the neutrality of the interview process, he did not deny the active role of the investigator. Remember, he thought that the point of sagacity was to make the world a better place. Accordingly, he did not want to find these sages only to make the point that, as he once put it, philosophy is not a monopoly of the West. He wanted to find sages in order to learn from them. The right response to the transcript of an interview with a sage would not be merely to say, gosh, that person is really a philosopher despite being an uneducated African. It would be to engage with the ideas that are expressed by that sage and take them further. As Oruka said in an interview with Kai Kresse, we take the text of one given sage, folk sage or philosophical sage, then we subject that to analysis, to investigation and examination, and so they contribute to positions of our own debate. Speaking of Kai Kresse, he is one of the scholars who has taken on Oruka's ideas 
and with some modifications, put them into practice in his own fieldwork. Combining the techniques of anthropology and philosophical analysis, Kresse has lived and worked in Swahili-speaking East Africa and discussed the cultural context and significance of wisdom in that region. To find out more, join us next time when the interview subject will be Kai Kresse himself, who will be sharing his wisdom with us here on The History of Africana Philosophy. Thank you.